Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Brian Anjan and David Till, both 27 years old, were friends since childhood. To say that they were close was an understatement. Brian was the best man at David's wedding. Brian, who was engaged, planned on David being his best man. Whenever they could, the two men would take time out of their busy schedules and unwind. On November 22, 1985, they planned to go hunting. But they never made it to their hunting cabin and vanished soon after they left their homes. It would take almost 20 years before the truth of what happened to Brian and David would ever see the light of day. Come with me to November of 1985, when two men left the metro Detroit area on a hunting trip from which they would never return. David Till of Troy picked up his best friend, Brian Ogden of St. Clair Shores, in his black, 1980 Ford Bronco on Friday, November 22, 1985, around 2 p.m. They cashed a $50 check on the way out of town. Between the two of them, they brought hunting clothes, rifles, and about $140 in cash. Remember, the mid-80s meant few credit cards and fewer automated teller machines, especially when you got up north. The two were headed to visit David's relatives on Baseline Road east of White Cloud in Nuego County, then head onward to a hunting cabin owned by Brian's family located between Higgins Lake and Houghton Lake in Roscommon County. There, they would grab a hunting license and enjoy a relaxing weekend in the woods. They were to return home that Sunday evening, but they never made it home. In fact, they never made it to their friend's home. They didn't make it to the hunting cabin. They never picked up a license. They just disappeared. When they didn't return home, their families contacted police. Both men had steady work records and strong family ties. Police in the city of Troy, who were leading the investigation, were quoted as saying that based on information about the two men, the disappearance is, quote, completely out of character. This led police to focus the investigation towards either an accident or foul play. Roscommon County authorities continued to check the cabin to see if the men would show up, but they never did. The cabin remained eerily quiet. Sergeant Fran Staley of the Roscommon County Sheriff's Department was quoted as saying, There's no signs of anyone being there. State and local police launched an intensive search for the men and their vehicle. They searched the area where David's family lived, as well as cabins located in Roscommon and Midland counties, but there was no trace of them. A lieutenant with the Troy police described the thorough search, quote, The Midland County Sheriff did a two-hour air search. St. Clair Shores police searched every parking lot at Metro Airport, and we've given customs agents a description of the car. We've had a number of tips, but we've turned up nothing. One of the reasons that customs agents were given a description of the car is that Michigan borders Canada and there are several border crossings that the two men could have used to leave the country. There were plenty of tips that came in. Troy police officer Phil Steele, who was the coordinator of the search, 
because David was from Troy. He said that while there was a plethora of clues that came in about the men's whereabouts, nothing bore fruit. People reported seeing David and Brian shopping for Christmas trees in Cadillac, playing pool in a Nuevo County bar, and shooting craps in Las Vegas, Nevada, but none of these sightings panned out. There was one tip that gave the police some direction. Sergeant Richard Smith of the Oscoda County Sheriff's Department was quoted in the Detroit Free Press as saying he was a thousand percent sure the men stopped to ask for directions to Grayling from a Mayo resident on November 24th. After that, they stopped for a few beers about eight o'clock that night. Sergeant Smith said David's family has a cabin in the Houghton Lake area south of Grayling, but the men's trail stops at the bar. Because of this, police searched 100 square miles of the Midland County Forest by plane and kept an eye on the family-owned cabin in Sanilac County, north of Capac. In addition to this, a pilot from the State Department of Natural Resources, as well as the Oscoda County Sheriff's deputies, searched 2,000 miles of trail roads and the Osable Riverbed in Oscoda, Roscommon, and Crawford counties. But they didn't find the men, and they didn't find the truck. According to Sergeant Smith, police were getting to the point where they weren't sure what to do next. Detective Charles Usher of the St. Clair Shores Police said, frankly, I'm at a loss. We're very concerned. David's wife of seven years, Denise, spent Thanksgiving weekend searching the White Cloud area along with Brian's fiancée, Jan. Denise was afraid that her husband's Bronco, which wasn't working well at the time, could have broken down in the woods. She had another fear that the men fell victim to desperate criminals. Five convicts escaped from a prison camp in Kingsley the night before they disappeared. It would not be unlike David to stop and help someone, Denise worried. Maybe he helped the wrong person. But by Thanksgiving, three of the escaped convicts had been recaptured, but two were still missing from Camp Pugsley, a minimum security camp located about 75 miles north of White Cloud. But none of the men had a violent record, nor had they used a weapon during a crime. It came to the point where police had to circle back and take another look at old theories. Did the men disappear voluntarily? Denise vehemently denied that was possible. She was quoted in the Detroit Free Press as saying, I checked my bank and there have been no withdrawals and no transactions on his visa. David cashed his paycheck and only took about $50. He left the rest to me. The lack of bank activity after their disappearance made it highly unlikely that the two men left on their own. Despite this evidence, some police officers couldn't let this theory go. Denise said, quote, One officer in Big Rapids laughed and told me there are a lot of cheap women and lots of booze up there, and said, If they're involuntarily missing, there's nothing we can do. This isn't somebody who's going to take off. We were saving for a house. If he was going to run off with someone, it would be me. Officer Steele agreed with Denise, saying, these are family men, and Thanksgiving is a family holiday. Even if they'd been irresponsible for a few days, they would have called home. Brian was a mechanic for Michigan Bell Telephone Company and was looking forward to marrying his fiancée, who he'd known since she was 15. Elmer Sly, Brian's employer, said of Brian, quote, He is an excellent person and an excellent employee. There's no reason at all for him to disappear. David, he was a machinist who worked for his father-in-law. 
Five weeks into the investigation, as my friend Robin says, the trail went cold. Troy Police Officer Dan Caverly told the Detroit Free Press, That's it. The trail ends. We don't have anything else to go on. Police now had to wait on something from the public to jumpstart the investigation. Officer Caverly told the press, quote, We are waiting. All of the information has been collected. The motors are just sitting there waiting to be put into gear. Unless something else happens, they've just vanished. A year later, in November of 86, police put out a new plea for help. They were looking for a shovel they thought could have been ditched in the thousands of acres of state forest land around Gaylord. They asked deer hunters in Otsego and Montmorency counties to keep a lookout for any shovel that looked out of place in the forest. The shovel could have been a clue to locating the body of a missing turkey hunter who had been missing since the previous May, 75-year-old Roger Walstead of Clarkston. Roger had apparently been kidnapped by 23-year-old Joel Paul Hanna on May 5, 1986. Joel had previously abducted and shot to death Otsego County Sheriff's Deputy Carl Darling Jr. and fled to Georgia in Roger's van. On May 8th, Joel was killed by police. After police inventoried the van, they realized that a shovel was missing. The shovel was pointed and about three feet long. Police theorized that Roger's body may be buried near the shovel. However, snowfalls of up to eight inches made searching for the shovel difficult. There were some investigators who believed that Joel Paul Hanna was also responsible for the disappearance of Brian and David. They noted that because Joel hid Deputy Darling's patrol car and once drove a car into a lake, perhaps he killed Brian and David and hid the Bronco. A reward of $5,000 was offered for information leading to the recovery of Roger's body, but ultimately, this led nowhere. Two years later, and the leads again dried up. The case stayed open, but only technically open. It wasn't an active case by any means. Just kept on life support by occasional family and law enforcement inquiries. For several years after they vanished, there would be a short story in the Detroit press about the anniversary of their disappearance. Detective Lieutenant Gus Blumline of the St. Clair Shores Police told the Times-Herald, quote, It's on the shelf right now. We've exhausted all of our leads. The most worthwhile leads, those came in during the first few weeks of the investigation, but at this point, they're gone. Even the far-fetched theories are long past. Now, there's nothing, just the pain of two families wondering what happened to Brian and David. Three years go by, and the Ithaca Journal does a piece on their disappearance. They interview the Till family, and it's clear their pain is just as sharp as the day they found out David was missing. Kathy Till, David's mother, said she was just as happy to talk about David as she was the rest of her 13 children. As much as she's willing to talk about the happy times, she's also willing to go over details of the disappearance. Quote, friends are hesitant. I've had people say, I have friends who don't know you, but they want to know if you've heard anything. I appreciate people talking about it. It lets us know that people still care. Also willing to discuss the details of his son's disappearance is Arthur, David's father. Both Kathy and Arthur assisted with the search for the two men. Arthur told the Ithaca Journal that he believed Brian and David made it to Mayo in the northeastern Lower Peninsula. He spoke to a waitress at a bar called the Linker's Lost Creek Lodge, 
who remembered serving two men, one with a beard and the other who resembled a character from the TV show Maud. Arthur said, quote, My son had a beard, but during hunting season, everyone has a beard. But she said that one looked like Maud's husband, and I looked at the picture of Brian and noticed she was right. This waitress, she swears they were there. In 1988, the Ithaca Journal also spoke to Helen and George, Brian's parents. They expanded the search, distributing more than a thousand flyers across the country with their son's physical description and a phone number for those with information to call. They also wrote several letters to the producers of Unsolved Mysteries to see if the popular TV show would cover their story. They sent their flyers to several psychics, one of whom said the two men were around. Quote, I was overjoyed at the news. You have to realize that when you're in our shoes, you grasp at a maybe. This has been very, very heartbreaking. I've been praying. I've spent many sleepless nights walking the floor. Not a day goes by that I don't shed a tear for him, said Brian's mother. Again, the theory of the men voluntarily disappearing was visited. Both families dismissed it wholeheartedly. George Ogden told the paper, Brian was a good boy. He had a good job and was very dependable. It's hard to believe he'd leave on his own. We have to have some hope. But after three years, it's a little on the remote side. The two families hoped that the $15,000 reward they posted would help bring in more tips, but the case remained cold. In 1989, a truck top was unearthed in the search for the two hunters. Investigators in Ogemaw County unburied the top back portion of a truck they thought may have belonged to David's Bronco. A state police trooper in West Branch had been quoted as saying investigators found a partial fingerprint on the truck part but it was later clarified by West Branch Post Commander Lieutenant Wes Hubers that no usable prints were found. Upon further investigation, police were unable to say if the truck part belonged to the missing Bronco. The once promising lead turned out to be another dead end. In 1990, a syndicated television show called Missing Reward came to Michigan, where they interviewed the families of David and Brian. Their piece on the case aired in the Traverse City area over Labor Day weekend and was shown elsewhere, including nationally, several times in 1990 and 1991. This led to calls about the missing men coming in from Minnesota, Washington State, and California, but none of these leads went anywhere. And listeners, we'll be right back. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. On July 15, 1997, Brian George Ogden was pronounced legally dead. His mother had filed the paperwork months earlier, July 15, 1997. This is the date of death listed for a man who hadn't been seen or heard from in 12 long years. That fall, the case of the missing hunters was in the news again. On November 1, 1997, the Detroit Free Press ran a lengthy piece on the case, penned by Hugh McDermott, Jr., 
If you listen to the Don't Talk to Strangers series that I released in 2018 and 2019, I interviewed Hugh on that Oakland County child killer investigation. We're going to hear from him at the conclusion of this episode. Once this piece was released in the free press over the next several months from October until the spring of 98, a series of tips and calls came in about the case, but none of them went anywhere. It was infuriating for the families and a letdown for investigators. Now it's November of 1998, 13 years after the men vanished. The Michigan Big Game Hunters Association offered a reward of $15,000. That, plus $16,000 from the Families and Crime Stoppers of Michigan, brought the total for reliable information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the disappearance of Brian and David to $31,000. In 1998, that's a lot of money. The MBGHA's executive director, Glenn Williams, stated, quote, We're convinced that this large sum of money will buy us and the Michigan State Police some reliable information. Unfortunately, the reward led them nowhere. It would be another five years until an arrest was made in this case. On May 15, 2003, while standing next to the victim's three surviving parents, Attorney General Mike Cox announced he was charging two brothers with the deaths of David Till and Brian Ogden. Attorney General Cox made a statement to the media, quote, As Attorney General, I promised that I would protect and fight for the most vulnerable members of our society, especially the 400,000 victims of felony crimes in the state and their families. It is on behalf of two of those families that today I am charging Donald and Raymond Duvall with the deaths of David Till and Brian Ogden. A lot is owed to the Michigan State Police for their work on this case. If it weren't for this persistence, these killers may have never been charged. Now, this break in the case, it came as a result of dogged efforts by state police as well as investigative subpoenas by the Attorney General's office to question new witnesses. 51-year-old Donald Coco Duvall and 52-year-old Raymond Jr. Duvall were each charged with two counts of murder in the first degree, punishable by life in prison. They were held at the Montmorency County Jail without bond. The arrests of Donald and Raymond were not a complete shock to investigators. State police investigators said tips consistently led to a half-dozen men. Some of these men were brothers from the South Branch area. Rumor was they got into an altercation with David and Brian while at the Linker's Lost Creek Lodge. In a 1997 interview, state police detective Doug Halleck said, quote, They may have gotten mixed up with some locals. After that, something happened to our visiting hunters. The arrest complaint confirmed this story. The two brothers from the backwoods of northern Michigan bragged about beating the two men to death after an altercation at the bar, then cutting up the bodies and feeding them to pigs. There were three other men involved in the beating, but according to Attorney General Cox, there was not enough evidence to charge them with the crime. After their arrest, anonymous investigators confirmed that the Duvall brothers had been the focus of the investigation for years, but many potential witnesses feared that if they came forward, the family, which consisted of seven brothers, would retaliate. You see, the Duvalls had a reputation for drinking, fighting, abuse, and revenge, and not in that order. 
Attorney General Cox, in his statement to the media, as well as the arrest warrant, helped clear up what the two missing hunters did during their last weekend. On Friday, November 22nd, they left for their trip and told their families they were going to David's family cabin. Instead, they were spotted drinking in Walker's Bar in Mayo that night. It's unknown where they spent that night, but they returned to Walker's for breakfast the next morning on November 23rd. The next sighting of the two men was in Linker's, a bar just west of Mayo. Brian and David were visibly intoxicated and offending some of the customers. This is according to a barmaid that was cited in the warrant. The barmaid also noticed the Duvall brothers and another unidentified man watching Brian and David very closely as they played pool. The warrant read, quote, The witness believed that, because of the known reputation of the Duvall brothers for violent behavior, there was going to be trouble. The Duvall brothers and their partner were joined by two other men later that evening. Shortly before midnight, the barmaid told police there was a disturbance outside. In the headlights of a vehicle, she saw the two brothers punching, kicking, and clubbing Brian with a bat or metal rod, quote, until Brian lay unmoving on the ground. David ran off, but he was chased by the brothers. They caught him and beat him to death in the same manner. Then they tossed the bodies in the back of the 1984 Bronco Brian and David had been driving and drove away in the Bronco and their own vehicles. Later in the evening, according to the warrant, the Bronco was seen by a girlfriend of Donald Duvall. She told police she heard Raymond shout to a third brother, Randy Duvall, Get rid of that fucking truck before you get us all in trouble. The warrant ends by describing a 1987 Duvall family gathering at a bar in Wixom, which is in Oakland County, in which two witnesses overheard the brothers admit that they dismembered the bodies and fed them to pigs. Authorities say the family kept pigs on a small farm near Mayo. A preliminary examination was scheduled on May 21, 2003. However, because the Duvall's attorney had yet to see hundreds of pages of police reports, witness interviews, and other evidence, the preliminary exam was delayed for several weeks while he prepared. Attorney Seymour Schwartz from Berkeley was hired by the Duvall family to represent the two brothers. The case was to be tried in the 81st District Court in Mayo. With the delay, the media took this time as an opportunity to look deeper into the lives of Raymond and Donald Duvall. Both men were known for their drinking and partying in the forests of northeast Lower Michigan. They lived off the land and slept in small cabins and dilapidated trailers. They were not above using their fists to resolve or create problems. And this lifestyle suited the brothers just fine. The vast federal forests and swamps had plenty of hunting and fishing. The family was shut off from the world, not just physically, but psychologically. They would run into the occasional game warden, but the police were stretched too thin in this area so they couldn't keep a handle on the wild bunch. Raymond and Donald were the oldest of seven boys, loyal to the family above all. This case was not open and shut. The prosecution had its work cut out for them. The bodies were never found, nor was the Bronco. There wasn't a scrap of physical evidence that connected Coco and Junior to the two missing men. Attorney Seymour Schwartz told the Detroit Free Press there was a reason for that. They weren't there, and they didn't do anything. And they're angry because they think they're being worked by the cops. Scott Williams, the attorney for Raymond, he agreed with Schwartz. 
He said all the police had were basically rumors and 1,200 pages of police reports with no physical evidence. Schwartz said it was clear this was all about clearing the books on a case that detectives couldn't figure out. It was also about getting the families of the missing men off the backs of the police. He said the prosecution's witnesses were unreliable, as many of them had extensive criminal histories and had a reason to hate the Duvalls. There was extra security at the courthouse in Mayo during the trial. There were rumors that the Duvalls were going to try and make a run for it with the help of friends or family. The month before the trial, guards at the Montmorency County Jail in Atlanta, Michigan, found bricks that had been pried from the jail cell walls and they were hidden in a common area. Only four inmates had access to that area, and two of those inmates were the Duvall brothers. The trial of the Duvall brothers began on October 20, 2003. The climax of the trial came with the prosecution's star witness, Barbara Boudreaux. Barbara was terrified. Before she even took the stand, she collapsed in tears and tremors and ran for the courtroom's exit door. Barbara revealed that she was the only surviving witness who saw what happened to David and Brian. After she collected herself, she took the stand where she testified that she watched Raymond and Donald Duvall beat the two hunters to death in a rural field near her northern Michigan home. Quote, the taller one, that's David, was trying to get on his knees and saying, please, God, help us, she testified. She continued saying that Donald Duvall swung a bat at David's head, and the sound? It was just like if you drop a pumpkin, and there was just blood. The Duvalls and the three identified men just laughed and said, Did you see that? The men then made fun of Brian for wetting himself in terror before kicking and punching Brian to death. Barbara Boudreaux was not the ideal witness. A self-described hard partier who went to bars almost every night during the 80s, she kept what she saw to herself for years. She did this because she'd been threatened by the Duvalls and their friends. In 1999, based on a tip, State Police Detective Sergeant Robert Bronco Lesneski came to her home. Quote, he wanted to come in, and I said no. I was nervous and crying. I said he was going to get me killed. She knew about the reward money, which by that point had grown to nearly $100,000, but she said she wouldn't live to spend it if she talked. It took several police interviews and a special investigative hearing where Barbara was placed under oath before she told the entire story. She said she'd been at the Linker's Lounge Bar near her Mayo home when David and Brian came in. David and Brian began harassing her and other patrons. The Duvalls came in and zeroed in on the men. Later, the Duvalls' friends showed up. Quote, I knew it was going to be trouble, Barbara said echoing what the barmaid had said earlier about the same situation. Barbara and a friend left the bar and went to her home, less than two miles from the bar. When the latter went to investigate the sounds of arguing, they witnessed the murders. Her friend, who also saw the murders, Ronald Emery of Mayo, had since passed away. When it came time for cross-examination, the defense attorneys tried to poke holes in Barbara's story pointing out inconsistencies in the various statements she had made since 1999. Barbara admitted that she'd lied or misled investigators on numerous occasions to keep herself from having to testify against the Duvalls. 
She also admitted to having more than nine mixed drinks on the night of the murders. Despite their claims of innocence and a lack of physical evidence tying them to the crime, Raymond and Donald Duvall were convicted of two counts of first-degree murder on October 20, 2003. They were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on November 13, 2003. Prior to sentencing, the families were allowed to make statements to the two brothers accused of taking the lives of David Till and Brian Ogden. Quote, When you wake up in the morning, you will hear Dave's screams, Sean Till, David's brother, said. All we have left are the memories. You guys are still alive. Brian's 84-year-old mother faced the 23rd Circuit Court Judge Ronald Bergeron as a statement was read on her behalf by a relative, quote, Many good memories of Brian remain with me. She then spoke of the Duvalls. You have deprived me of having grandchildren. May God have mercy on your souls. Raymond Duvall said to the families that he and his brother were innocent of the crimes they were going to prison for. Quote, I feel really bad for you, but it's hard to find remorse when you didn't do it. Maybe not in this lifetime, but in your next lifetime, I guarantee you will find out we had nothing to do with this. Both lawyers for the Duvalls said they would almost certainly appeal. Judge Bergeron rejected a request from Raymond's lawyer to reduce the charge against him to second-degree murder. After the sentencing, police vowed to continue tracking leads to try and find the bodies of David and Brian or their belongings, including the 1984 Bronco. They would also not rule out charges for the other men believed to be involved in the crime as well. Police also believe there were others who helped dispose of and destroy evidence. It is still an open case, said Sergeant Bronco Lesneski. Time will tell. David's mother, Kathy Till, praised investigators from the numerous departments who stayed working on the case for 18 years. She said their efforts helped the families. Quote, We have heard of evil, cruel people here, but we have also heard of caring, loving people. We got our answer. We got our bittersweet justice. If you're interested in more on this case, there is a book called Darker Than Night, written by Tom Henderson. This book is a painstaking account of the investigation and the trial. And listeners, to wrap up this much-requested episode, I have an interview with Michigan reporter Hugh McDarmid. Hugh covered the case as it unfolded in real time, and I really appreciate him taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. So I was, I was up, uh, in, I graduated from college in 84, started working for the Roscommon Herald News, which no longer exists. So I was the only reporter on a tiny newspaper staff up in Roscommon in the Northwoods. In, 19, in the uh, fall of 1985 is when the hunters disappeared. And um, <clears throat> it was um, it was a big story up there. It was a huge story up there for years. During hunting, every hunting season, there would be flyers in every bar, on every light pole. Um, you know, the DNR was asking hunters to keep an eye out for the Ford Bronco that they were driving and, um, everybody knew about it. And there was, um, a connection to Roscommon. One of the, one of the uh, missing hunters had a relative who had a cabin in Roscommon that was searched. So we did a story on it and I became kind of, uh, fascinated by the disappearance of these hunters and, you know, the, the no trace of physical evidence left of their, of their being up there. 
and um, followed the story for years. I didn't work at the Roscommon paper for very long after that, but I moved to some weekly newspapers in Grand Rapids and then later to the Detroit Free Press. And I keep track of the anniversary of their disappearance and various things and do do update stories on it occasionally. And it was it was I mean, it was a huge mystery. It was, uh, you know, everybody was looking for these guys. They were. You know, the police were, um, you know, dredging, not dredging, but they were doing side scan sonar and lakes and for ground disturbances. They had, you know, tons of people out in the woods looking. They had psychics calling in. They were following up on tips from psychics. They were, you know, they were running, uh, you know, they were searching the bottoms of various lakes to see if they could unearth this car. It was it was the talk of northern Michigan for, for many years after those hunters disappeared um, and remained a mystery for something like 18 years before they finally arrested a couple folks and, and, and convicted them of the murder. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, it was a fascinating story. It was a mystery for a long time and, until uh, the story finally came out with these hunters and, and what had happened to them. Now, the Bronco, which they looked for desperately, was never recovered. The Bronco was never found, not a, not a piece of it. They never found the, the, the truck. They never found their guns. They never found any of their clothing or anything belonging to them or, or any trace that, uh, you know, that they thought might have been connected with them. They, they, you know, it was just everything they, they brought with them um, was never found again. What do you think happened to the Bronco? There are two leading theories for what happened to the truck. One is... Um, um, two of the Duvall brothers were convicted of, of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Uh, they suspected that other of the brothers, other of that clan, were involved in the in the murder. And one of the brothers owned a junkyard slash chop shop up there. So, you know, he was in the business of, of chopping up old cars and, you know, and, and, and disposing of the parts. And so the leading theory is that the Bronco was taken to that facility and chopped into little bits. And, you know, and then and then sent out. Um, and that's why it was never found. The other theory is that it's at the bottom of a deep lake somewhere. Um, but, you know, the longer time goes on, I think the chop shop theory probably is, is, is the most likely theory that it was, you know, chopped into unrecognizable pieces and disposed of. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, one of the things that people don't understand, um, and, and we touch on it a little bit in the episode, but how scary the Duvall brothers were. Yeah, this was uh, this was a terrifying crew of um, of, of brothers who who lived um, up north in, in in the woods and were true woodsmen, and you know to some extent lived off the land, and they um, you know they had their own their own little clique of very um, I don't know how to put it. Um, you know, they say that they say that boys play hard. Well, these these folks not only played hard, but they played very dangerously. People up there were afraid of them. They did whatever they pleased. Basically, there were all sorts of stories about you know them getting in brawls, um, beating people up, you know, shooting at each other. Um, there were stories that local farmers would come out in the morning and find that one of their cows had been um, shot in the field, and then and then you know, um, um, field dressed, the meat taken away and everything. And they they knew it was the Duval brothers, but that was the price of doing business up there. They didn't, they didn't say anything. And, and I went up there after they were arrested, but before they were convicted 
and talked to a lot of folks who had had run, run-ins with them or were pals with them. And, you know, the, the stories were pretty outrageous. One of them told me uh, uh, that just for kicks one day, they, they grabbed one of the brothers and, and wrestled him to the ground, tied him up and tied him to some rope and winched him up into the crotch of a tree and left him there for half a day um, struggling to get out of there because they thought it was fun. So this is the kind of fun they oh had. And, and, you know, there were lots of other stories. I remember talking to a conservation officer who said that he was uh, training a rookie officer and he came upon the Duval brothers um, um, fishing illegally in a stream and he confronted them and he took his, his, uh, his rookie aside and he said, listen, these guys are dangerous. I want you to keep your hand on your weapon, you know, and keep your distance um, um, because he knew what they were capable of. So, um, you know, and another uh, one of the sheriff's deputies up there told me, you know, there were, you know, there was a big county and, 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 a, and a small sheriff's force and they pretty much stayed out of the Duval brothers uh, here. Uh, you know, unless somebody was dead, they uh, they really didn't go and, and proactively investigate a lot of things with the Duval brothers because it just wasn't worth the, uh, the potential violence that would happen. Um, there was another story that came out during trial of uh, one of the Duval brothers was in a fight with his wife and the wife picked up a gun and fired a few shots at him as he ran out of the house. And uh, all the brothers thought that was really a, really a hilarious story. So a little gunplay was just par for the course with these folks up there. So, yeah, they were a little bit, uh, well, more than a little bit. They were they were pretty much, the, if you've seen the movie Deliverance and you've seen some of the folks there, that's what a lot of people compare it to. It was just they lived by their own rules. Um, uh, people were afraid of them and kept their distance from them. And they, you know, they, they did their own thing. And. Uh, you know, until this incident happened, uh, you know, they, um, uh, you know, they were uh, pretty much uh, kept at arm's length by law enforcement in a lot of ways. So, yeah. So even law enforcement really didn't want to tangle with them because they were that unhinged. <clears throat> yep. Not, not unless it was necessary. They, they said there were certain places in the county that the deputies really didn't want to go. And, and the Duval Brothers territory is one of those places. Wow. So when the, the Bronco... Lesneski, who was the detective sergeant with the Michigan State yep. Police, he really pursued, he almost courted Barbara Boudreaux to get her to testify. Yeah, Bronco Lesneski was, you know, is, is one of the key heroes of this story. He uh, he was dogged. Uh, he inherited the case from, you know, the original investigators. He wasn't on the original investigative team. But he picked up that cold case and kept pushing. And he knew that this Barbara Boudreaux woman um, knew something. Um, he told me the story of when he uh, picked up the file and reviewed it, and he saw that, you know, the the Duval brothers were suspected in this, and they had some involvement, and they had been bragging about it a little bit, and that Barbara Boudreau had told people that she knew a lot about it, and, and, that, and that she wasn't talking because she feared for her life. Um, Barbara was a uh, had lived a hard life. She uh, was, a, was a, you know, admittedly a heavy drinker, and she had spent a lot of time in the bar um, where, where the du- Duval brothers first crossed paths with uh, the missing hunters. And, um, and, and she was afraid. And so Bronco Lesneski uh, was knocking on people's doors and reviewing all the witnesses and people who had been interviewed and kind of re-interviewing them. And he knocked on Barbara's door one day and she cracked the door open and said, hello. And he said, hello, I'm, you know, a detective with the state police. And she said, I, I can't talk to you. They'll kill me. And she tried to shut the door on him. And I remember him saying that it was kind of out of character for him because he was a real straight-laced Boy Scout type guy, but he decided to put his foot in the door and not let her shut it. 
And so he, he held the door open with his foot and started talking to her and asking her why she was scared. And she didn't want to talk. And he said, okay, I'm going to come back next week and, and, and just chat with you again. And he took the approach of not pressing her for answers and saying, I know you knew something, but just befriending her. And she didn't have a lot of friends. And and uh, and he would come over and have coffee with her and just chat with her and not necessarily even talk about the case or the missing hunters. Um, but he just befriended her. And I remember him saying one day she was uh, – she was uh, complaining that she had a, a, a leak in her roof and she didn't have any money to repair it. So he actually went on the roof and fixed, fixed up, you know, put some tar on her roof and, and stopped the leak and, wow. and really kind of earned her trust. And then my recollection is that, you know, he, he would tell her, you know, that he really needed to know what she knew. And she said, I, I can't tell you, I'm scared. And they decided, uh, Bronco and I think the, um, let's see, who, who was it? The, uh, the prosecuting attorney, the state attorney general's office, called Barbara, Barbara to come down to Lansing and compel her to come down and testify under oath in a, I think it was called a, oh, what did they call that? It wasn't a deposition, but it was something less than that, but it was still under oath. It was some sort of investigative interview. And they they brought her down kind of as a as a shot in the dark thinking that she would not be willing if she hadn't uh, to date um, to tell the whole story of what she knew. And they sat her down in the room and asked her if she knew the Duval brothers and where she had been the night that the hunters had disappeared. And she uh, surprised everyone in the room by just spilling the beans and saying, yep, I was, you know, I was watching a movie with my friend and I heard a commotion outside and we walked through the woods. I walked through the woods and in this clearing, I saw uh, a circle of cars with their headlights on illuminating the uh, uh, the two hunters who, um, you know, were crying and begging for their life. And she watched um, the Duval brothers beat them with a baseball bat to death. Jesus. And she was very graphic in explaining, um, you know, what it sounded like and, and what the hunters were saying. And it was... Uh, you know, the details of what she said, even though there was no physical evidence um, for the prosecution, the details of what she said and her believability, I think, were key to the case. And she hightailed it back to her house, but apparently the Duval brothers had seen her or heard her. And when they were leaving the scene, um, a couple of them knocked on her door and said something to the effect of, um, you know, you didn't see or hear anything because pigs have to eat too and, and, and left her terrified there. And so for years she kept silent about this, but at this Lansing hearing where she was under oath, she said what she saw and, and was the eyewitness testimony that, uh, that eventually led to the conviction. And she was really the only witness who was able to come forward. The gentleman mm-hmm. that she was with that night had passed away and there really wasn't anybody else who could corroborate. Yeah, she was- she was the only eyewitness. She had a friend who was with her who saw it, um, but he had passed away by the time uh, uh, the case came up. Um, but there were a number of other um, um, witnesses who were called who testified and kind of corroborate, corroborated her story. You know, they uh, they were in a bar and they were bragging about what they'd done to the hunters and talking about how they cut them up and fed them to pigs because apparently pigs will eat anything, including bone. And at various points in the in the years following the murders, um, um, bragged about it or let people know about it or made allusions to it. And, you know, other people would then talk to other people about it. So it was kind of a, you know, it was kind of a poorly, poorly kept rumor, but it was it was only a rumor probably wouldn't have been enough circumstantial evidence alone to convict these guys without Barbara Boudreaux's testimony. 
Yeah, and he and she was at best reluctant. She was. Um, I, I was in the courtroom when she came in, and I can remember her walking in, starting to walk up toward the witness stand, having a panic attack, and breaking down and rushing out. And uh, you know, at that point, it was really touch and go whether she was going to be able to keep it together. She was not the most emotionally stable person, and she did have a drinking problem, and she was very terrified to testify in front of these guys. But she went outside, collected herself came back, got on the, you know, and, and did a good job for the prosecution. She was cross-examined pretty heavily, obviously, um, about, you know, her, her drinking and her recollections of the night. And, um, and, 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 and she did a pretty good job on the stand of, of, of pushing back against that. And, you know, one of the other things that kind of, um, led to her testimony being more believable is her, there was a pretty substantial reward um, offered in the days after the hunters went missing, and, th- and that reward climbed over the years. And I can't remember what it ever got up to, um, but for a woman like her of limited means, it was it would have been a real lucrative thing to come forward and say what she knew and, and get that reward. I don't know whether she ever eventually got it, but the fact that she waited for 18 years before telling the story right. uh, is kind of a uh, you know it was a point in favor of prosecution that you know they tried to they tried to paint her as somebody looking for the reward, but you know why it took 18 years was a compelling piece of the case. Also, yeah, I think it was in '89 that the reward jumped to thirty-one thousand dollars. Okay, I was, I was thinking twenty-five, but yeah, yeah, but that's in the '80s. That was a huge amount of money. Yeah, and life-changing yeah. for someone like Barbara. And I also just kind of rambling and because I remember things as I start talking about it. Um, you know, they were held in jail awaiting their trial, and and when the um, um, when it came tri- time for the well, they were held in jail up in Mayo, I think. And yeah. when it came time for the preliminary exam, they had a lot of security in the courtroom because there were a lot of rumors that the other Duvall brothers or some motorcycle gang members who they were affiliated with, um, there were rumors that they might try to uh, break them out, um, do something radical. And and uh, so there was an awful lot of security o- around the courthouse. Um, there was an incident in which... Um, uh, I don't know, maybe you know more about this than I do, but s- somehow they found um, something, a key or a knife or it was a brick. some sort of tool. It was a brick. Was yep. it, it was a brick itself, or they were removing bricks and trying to remove the bricks from the jail. But anyway, they were trying to get out. They were trying to get out of jail, and they had some sort of incident where they found them trying to either get out of jail or had a tool that they were trying to use to get out of jail. So, so there was a lot of security and a lot of fear that that these folks would, you know, that, that there would be some violence here. Because there were the two that Coco and Junior that were on trial, but then there were another four or five boys that were just as troubling as the defendants that were free. Yeah. My, my recollection is there were five Duval brothers. Um, I could be wrong on that, but there were, there were three brothers who were never charged. And then a couple of friends and associates who also uh, were likely there that night who, who also weren't, weren't charged. And I, I'll walk you through my recollection too of Barbara's testimony in which she said she was at Linker's lost, is it Linker's Lost Lodge? Yes. You probably have it there. Yep. And she was a regular there, and the Duval brothers were there. And these and these two hunters, um, you know, they were 
they were young guys in their 20s from downstate, and they'd been drinking a lot. There were stories about how they got lost, and one one gentleman um, tried to help them find their way in the dark when they were lost and realized that they were so intoxicated they were trying to read their map upside down, so he straightened the map out. So they were not in good shape when they got to the bar, and the story was from Barbara that they were a little bit loud and obnoxious. And there's a, you know, there's a, um, there's a cultural issue in Michigan where, um, you know, folks who live up north uh, who are often uh, more blue collar and, and lower income and, and, and live up north because of the quiet uh, pace of life, a lot of times are resentful when hunting season comes and all these hunters and their fancy gear uh, come from downstate and places like Metro Detroit and everything. And they invade the bars and they hit on the women and they get drunk and they do stupid things. And it's kind of like, here come all these idiots from downstate for two weeks, you know, messing with our, our, our lifestyle up here. And so when they came in the bar and they were drunk and carrying on and, and making suggestive comments to waitresses and maybe touching them inappropriately and really kind of making pests of themselves. Um, and, and the Duval brothers didn't like this. And, and Barbara said she saw them eyeing these guys and with ill intent and knew that something bad was going to happen. And um, she watched them get on the phone and call. And after they made the phone call a little while later, some more folks, some more of their friends showed up and the other brothers and were hanging out at the bar. I and these guys. And she said, well, you know, when they when they left the bar, the Duval brothers left with them or, or right after them. And apparently, uh, as they uh, uh, turned out of the parking lot, the Duval brothers followed them in, 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 in their vehicles and then forced them off the road into this clearing where they dragged them out of the car and, and you know, beat them to death. Um, and it was, you know, um, you know, it was a really crazy story, uh, but she apparently had, had seen this whole thing and, uh, uh, you know, ended up testifying about it, albeit years later. Uh, we went up there. I went up there and covered the trial. And, and then we went up there and, and, and I covered the sentencing and the sentencing, you know, isn't, isn't a very long and involved court hearing. And I remember it was on a Friday and we wanted to go up north to our cottage. And so I took my wife with me and we actually left the dogs in the car in the parking lot where I sat in the sentencing and it started to occur to me during the sentencing, like, you know, my name's on these stories and, you know, the other Duval brothers are here and our dogs are alone in the car. And I began to worry about our dogs. Um, given their reputation, of course, nothing happened, but it was that kind of, you know, they instilled that kind of sort of fear in, 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 in people and their unpredictability with, you know, what they might do. So, yeah, they were really, um, uh, you know, they were really uh, uh, folks who kind of lived, uh, uh, you know, into a law and to themselves. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the story is pretty unbelievable and, you know, uh, it's 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 one of those North Northwoods tales that uh, that will probably continue on and and you know it, the other fascinating thing is to date there's been no admission of guilt there's been no shred of you know any of the hunter's belongings or their truck or anything they, it's as if they disappeared off the face of the earth. It really is. We I don't know if you know I run the Missing in Michigan group working with law enforcement and we mm-hmm. post them periodically because they are still officially legally missing. You know, even though their case has been tried yeah. and someone's been found guilty of their yeah. murders, until they're recovered, they are still considered missing persons. Yeah. You know, I, I always thought it would be interesting. You know, I mean, those two guys and their brothers know what happened to these guys. You know, for somebody on their deathbed to admit to it would be really interesting. And I actually thought about, you know, maybe even writing a letter to them in prison and saying, hey, you know, I'm, 
you know, covered this case. And if you ever want to say what happened, you know, somebody will listen to you. Um, my recollection is that the one guy, I think Coco, the dark haired guy was pretty hardcore. Um, but Jr. was a little bit older and kind of less, I don't know, antisocial that, you know, I saw in him the possibility that he might want to at some point, since he's going to be in prison for life anyway, fess up to it. Uh, but then again, you know, the code of the brothers sticking up for each other is probably stronger than his conscience. <laughs> yeah. Family, family first, so to speak. And there was also a crazy side story about the Duval brothers. And this is right around the time the hunters disappeared, had some sort of party and some poor woman passed out and was lying in the road and got run over by one of the Duval brothers or their friends who was leaving early for work in the dark and like ran over this passed out woman in the road and killed her. And, oh God. and they did an investigation and, um, and determined that the guy had no idea it was dark and he, you know, knew he bumped over something, but he didn't know it was a body. And, and, and there was a lot of speculation about, about whether that was uh, also foul play, but they determined that it probably wasn't. It's just, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing like, you know, a drunk party for some woman passes out in the road and gets run over by a car and killed kind of par for the course for these guys. But they, yeah, they were, they were crazy, insane, criminally insane. Yeah. Yeah. When even law enforcement is avoiding you because you're that troubling, I think it says a lot about the family. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a ton of requests to cover this case. And I, you know, I always thought, well, it's pretty open and shut. They went missing in 85. Not a lot happened for 18 years. And then they brought it, you know, that Barbara Boudreaux spoke up and they brought charges. Mm -hmm. But it, it actually mm -hmm. was very interesting to, to sort of dig into the amount of work that went into just getting Barbara to come forward and building mm -hmm. this case. Um, we see so often when there's a, there's no body, prosecutors don't want to prosecute. Definitely Bronco. Um, you know, he, uh, he, you know, being in, in the, I think he was in the Houghton Lake post. No, maybe it's, I forget where he was stationed, but he, you know, he covered a lot of territory. You know, they have to drive a long way to get from place to place up North. And he said, he always carried a shovel in his truck. He would, get a tip and he would get his shovel and dig around somewhere because he wanted to find some evidence. Uh, you know, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of law enforcement and regular people up there too in the North woods who are, you know, and, and maybe still are kind of constantly thinking about this. And even when I go up in the woods, sometimes and you're walking through and you see some old rusting piece of machinery and, you know, you take a few steps closer to make sure it's not an old Ford Bronco because yeah. <laughs> you never know. Now, one of the things that I was wondering is why they didn't move the trial out of that area. Was there talk about their ability to get a fair trial in their community, or did that just not come up? I would think that. I would think that a move out of that area would probably be more initiated by the prosecutor because because you probably want to have people who weren't as closely connected to that culture so but I can't remember whether there's any discussion of that. Yeah, these guys, I mean, they were they were obviously acting the fool up in up in Mayo, but down here they were both had responsible jobs. One was married, mm -hmm. one was engaged. You know, yeah, they were yeah, outstanding they, citizens. Yeah. I think eventually the police kind of settled on this narrative where they had been bar hopping and and had gone in and been obnoxious in this bar and got crosswise with the Duval brothers who decided to take it out on them. And, 
you know, who knows what happened in that clearing? I mean, you know, obviously these guys were pretty defenseless and begging for their lives and um, just, uh, you know, they just decided to, to, to beat them. And I don't know whether they just wanted to hurt them and scare them and somebody cracked the skull open and it escalated from there or, or what. But, uh, you know, obviously these these brothers were a tight-knit bunch and, and you know, n- nobody has ever, uh, you know, um, admitted any guilt or squealed on anybody and, and you know, that... You know that that those, some of these secrets about who else were involved will probably go to the, the graves with them.